0: Like a laser, Jesus looks into everything and sees the reality of it as it is. The character of every church is transparent to Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is essentially saying to them, listen, I see everything.
1: Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom has part seven for us of his current series, The Seven Churches of Revelation. Today we begin to study the fourth letter as found in Revelation chapters two and three. Now, while this letter is the longest of the seven letters, it's written to the church in the smallest, youngest, and least important city of all the seven churches, the church in Thyatira. But the message, even to this church, is clear and just as important as any other. Christ warns this church about the devastating dangers of tolerating or accepting teaching that goes beyond or outside what the Bible teaches that is to say, extra-biblical revelation. So in what way was the church in Thyatira participating in this deep folly? And what does this letter have to do with your participation in a church today? Let's find out as we join our teacher now on The Word Unleashed.
0: Well, let's turn together to revelation as we continue to make our way through this wonderful book that's been given to us that unfolds the past and the future. We're looking at the seven churches and tonight we come to the church in Thyatira. Revelation chapter 2 and I'll begin reading in verse 18. Revelation 2 verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze says this, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them. I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit Says to the churches. Ironically, this is the longest of the seven letters, but it was written to the church in the smallest, youngest, and least important city of all. This letter is more difficult to interpret than some of the others because there are a number of references in it to details of life in the first century city that are now unclear. Archaeologists have explored very little of this ancient city and Frankly, there's very little left to explore because it was destroyed so many times as we'll learn in a moment. But the message to this church is clear. Here is a summary of this letter to the church in Thyatira. Christ warns His church about the devastating dangers of tolerating or accepting extra biblical revelation. With each of these seven letters, as we're walking through them, we're, we're using the same basic outline, and we'll do so again tonight, because it's the outline that Christ Himself uses. So as we study this church, we need to begin by considering the introduction to the letter, the command to write in verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and His feet are like burnished bronze, says this, First of all, as, we, as we've done, let's consider the character of this city. It says right to the church in Thyatira. The name is probably an ancient name that means the castle or city of Thyia. And so, there's not much else for us to learn about its name. As far as where it's located, this is a map that orients you. It is, as you can see, just south and southeast of Pergamum. Of the seven churches, Pergamum is the farthest north. When you leave Pergamum on the journey to Sardis, you head east along the river and then southeast, and the journey from Pergamum to Thyatira is about 40 miles. The city itself was built in a long valley that runs north and south, connecting the Caicos and Hermus valleys. The landscape where this city is located is essentially flat. It's situated on a main highway that runs all the way from Byzantium to Smyrna. So why are there so few ruins and excavations in the city of Thyatira? Well, the city has an interesting and checkered history. It was founded in about 290 B.C. by Seleucus I, one of the generals of Alexander, and he was the founder as well of of the Seleucid dynasty. Later, a man named... Lysimachus, who ruled Pergamum, that northern city, took the city of Thyatira. Now the city of Thyatira had no natural fortifications. So Lysimachus made it a simple military outpost that served as a kind of sentinel to temporarily delay invading armies that were approaching Pergamum just long enough so that the city could be warned and the city could become prepared. So it was, it was like a holding place for invading armies. That really was its only purpose. Because of its lack of defenses and because of its vulnerability, it was on a flat plain. It was captured countless times throughout history. In fact, in the records we have in ancient history, most of the references to the city of Thyatira have to do with it being captured. That's really all we learn, and that's why there's so few ruins, because the city was destroyed again and again and again as armies moved back and forth through these valleys. The Romans took Thyatira in 190 B.C., and with the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, the city was no longer needed as a military outpost. So ironically, around the very time in the same decade that John wrote this book, Thyatira had just come into its own. It had just turned from being a a backwater military outpost into becoming a great commercial manufacturing center. It had a strategic location on several important roads that crossed the region. It was a natural stopping place between cities for caravans traveling those roads. The city's commerce apparently reached even across the Aegean into Greece and Macedonia, as we'll see in a moment. The sort of mark of this city was something perhaps you read about in history. There were trade guilds, like our trade unions, labor unions that are the modern counterpart of them. Sir William Ramsey, an archaeologist, writes more trade guilds are known in Thyatira than in any other Asian cities. The inscriptions, though not especially numerous, mention the following. So here are some of the trade guilds or labor unions, if you will, that were there in Thyatira in the first century. Wool workers, linen workers, makers of outer garments, dyers, that is those who dye fabric and cloth, leather workers, tanners, tanners of skins, potters, bakers, slave dealers, and bronze smiths, that is metal workers who worked in bronze. All of that was in this area. So you can see, if you can sort of use your sanctified imagination, here's this, this little military outpost on a, on a lonely road that when the Romans take over and the peace comes, just explodes into this major manufacturing center driven by these trade gills. Lydia, you remember, the first convert in Europe, She was saved actually in in Philippi under Paul's ministry there, but she was from this city, Thyatira, and she too was involved in the textile trade. Acts 16, 14 says a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, that is she was a proselyte to Judaism, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. It's interesting, the the fabric that's mentioned there and the dye, the, the turkey red dye that was used to produce those purple fabrics that Lydia sold came from the matter root, a plant that grew commonly in the valley where this city was situated. And so all of that became a natural product of this place. There's a city there where Thyatira was today. You saw even some glimpses of it in maybe one of the pictures I showed a moment ago. The city that's there is about a hundred thousand people and it's called Akizar. Now, this city was not a religious center in the same way that Smyrna and Pergamum were. However, let's go back to the trade unions, to the trade guilds, because those were central in this town. Again, if you can picture the the explosion of manufacturing in the final decade of the first century, the time that John wrote. So what really dominated the city was its trade unions. That's what dominated the culture. There were many of them that flourished, and they were inseparably interconnected with the social and religious life of Thyatira. Not like ours that you can sort of leave it at work. These were integrated into both social and religious life. These trade guilds were wealthy and they were powerful. It came down to this. If you wanted to practice a trade in the city, it was essential for you to be a member of the appropriate guild. The divine guardian of the city was the god Teremnos, often identified with the Greek sun god Apollo. It was Teremnas, that was the patron of all the commercial guilds, and here's the rub if you belong to one of those guilds, when you went to the regular celebrations of your particular guild, it centered on the worship of this God. It was at the center. He was honored and worshiped at all civic events. We've seen the character of the city. Let's move on to the history of the church. Verse 18 says to the angel of the church in Thyatira. Again, there's no mention of this church being founded in the New Testament. However, as I mentioned a moment ago, we do read about the conversion of one woman who was from this city, Lydia. She was in Philippi, so she was across the Aegean Sea in Macedonia when she was converted under the ministry of the apostle Paul. But it is possible that she maintained a home in Thyatira. She was obviously a very successful businesswoman and it's very possible that she had a home still in the center of the manufacturing activity in Thyatira and she crossed the Aegean to find new markets in Macedonia, Philippi and beyond. And so we know in Acts 16 that some of her household were saved with her there in Philippi and it's possible that some of them traveled back to Thyatira from Philippi and that Lydia and her household were in some way responsible for the founding of this church. It's more likely however that the other cities in this area, or like the other cities in this area, Paul founded this church during the three years he spent in Ephesus described in Acts chapter 19 verse 10 when he was reaching out from Ephesus to all of these surrounding towns. That's likely when this church was founded. That brings us then In this introduction to the description of Christ. Borrowing from the vision in chapter 1, Christ here describes Himself, introduces Himself to the church in Thyatira in three ways. First of all, as fully God, He reminds them that He rules His church. Verse 18, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the Son of God. Now, you read that, and immediately you think, well, yeah, I mean, that that occurs everywhere. That's a very common expression. The truth is, this is the first and only time in the book of Revelation where this title for Christ occurs. The reason that Christ uses it for himself here is he's about to quote from Psalm 2 which speaks of God's Son. Psalm 2-7, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. By using this title for Himself, Christ reminds this church of His majesty, His deity, His authority, His right to rule. The fact that He rules now, and He will rule during the millennium. It also reminds them of His deity. He is of one essence with the Father. He is the Son of God. He rules his church. Secondly, as he introduces and describes himself, he describes himself in this way, with penetrating omniscience, he evaluates his church. He goes on to say, who has eyes like a flame of fire, The eyes of Christ, as they're described here, are like torches that light up everything he looks at and reveal what he sees to his eyes as it really is. As I were to put it in modern terms, I would say it like this, like a laser. Jesus looks into everything and sees the reality of it as it is. This was the same description Back in chapter 1, verse 14, this same description will come again at the second coming in chapter 19, verse 12. The point is this. The character of every church, including this church, is transparent to Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is essentially saying to them, listen, I see everything. I see everything. He sees everything with." crystal clear clarity. His penetrating omniscience looks into the heart of this church and he knows what is going on in the church as a whole and in the heart and mind and life of every individual. By the way, it's the same thing today. You know, we puny human beings like to think that we can think things and do things that nobody knows. Are there things in your life that you think nobody knows? You're lying to yourself because Jesus sees just as clearly what's going on in your life and in your heart and between your ears, just as he did this first century church. Penetrating omniscience. And it evaluates his church with perfect accuracy and clarity. And we'll see that in a moment as he explains what's going on in this church. The third description he gives of himself here tells us this, in light of his personal holiness, he purifies his church. The third description there in verse 18 are his feet are like burnished bronze, like a gleaming metal. Now this polished bronze here is is probably a refined alloy of copper or bronze with metallic zinc. In chapter 1, it's described as metal that is still in molten form when it's been made to glow in a furnace. This was a really familiar image in a city known for its metal workers' guild. Metal that's still in a molten state is like a crucible for everything it touches. In the same way, as Christ walks through his churches, he purifies them like metal in a furnace is purified. His personal holiness purifies his church. As one author put it, with such eyes the Son of God can see into the most distant and darkest places, and with such feet he can stamp out all opposition to his rule. This is the introduction Christ gives to the church in Thyatira. That brings us, secondly, to the body of the letter, the state of the church. This is verses 19 to 25. Here in the body of the letter, Jesus explains exactly the condition of this church. Now, as he does with all the churches about which he has something good to say, he begins with a commendation of the good in verse 19. Notice what he says, I know seven times to each of the churches He says, I know. And here he says it to this church, I know. His penetrating omniscience knows everything. He says, I know your deeds. Now, their deeds are further explained in the following four qualities. There are two sets of them. The first set identifies motives. The second set results. Isn't that interesting? Jesus knows motives, and he knows results. He knows what drives you, and he knows what actually occurs, what happens. And here it's positive. He knows the good. We we tend to concentrate on the fact that Jesus knows the bad, but here he says, I know the good. I know what's good in this church. He begins by saying, I know your love. That's interesting, isn't it, in light of what he said to the church in Ephesus? He says, I know your love. This church was known for its genuine love for God and for others. And he says, and faith. Faith here is is not faithfulness probably. It's, It's probably a continuing trust, a continuing trust in Christ and His Word. You keep on trusting me, and you keep on loving God and others. He says, and I know your service. You see love for God and for others leads to serving them and this church was known for its loving service and he adds and your perseverance faith in God and his word allow you to endure to persevere and this church was known for its persevering trusting faith and then he adds this and I know that your deeds of late, that is the more recent ones, are greater than at first. He may mean more in number, or he may mean better in quality, or he may mean both. Remarkably, this church, unlike the church in Ephesus that was, that was sinking down, this church was still growing in all of these wonderful qualities. Listen, don't miss this. This was a remarkable church but all was not well in Thyatira because Christ next turns to a correction of the sin in verses 20 to 23. Let's look at what's going on in this church. Verse 20, but I have this against you. Christ not only knows the good, and he does know the good, but he also knows the bad. And here's what he has against them, that you tolerate. It's an interesting word. The Greek word means to allow a margin of freedom. To leave it to someone to do something, to allow, to tolerate. That's what was happening in the church in Thyatira. They were tolerating one specific false teacher who was wreaking havoc on this church. Who was this person? Well, let's look at her. First of all, consider her character. Verse 20 says, you tolerate the woman Jezebel. Now, it's clear from the context of this letter, that the rest of the, the letter, that this was a specific woman who was known and influential in the church. And don't miss this. This was a woman in the church who professed the Christian faith, but Christ calls her Jezebel. Now, that's not likely her real name. It's pretty unlikely that she would be named that. I mean, people in the ancient world were familiar with the Hebrew Scriptures, familiar with the detestable character. I mean, anybody here named your daughter Jezebel? No, this is a pseudonym. This is a pseudonym for this woman that reveals her true character. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that the name Jezebel is infamous. Jezebel was the daughter of Ethbaal, king of Tyre, modern Lebanon area, and she married... Ahab, king of the northern kingdom of Israel, and Jezebel's name was to become proverbial for evil in Israel. Look at 1 Kings, turn with me to 1 Kings for a moment. Chapter 16. Here we meet this woman. 1 Kings 16, and look at verse 29. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, the son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 39th year of Asa, king of Judah. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. You remember, Jeroboam was the one who built those, those idolatrous images so the people in the north of Israel wouldn't go down to Jerusalem to worship. He was afraid of losing their loyalty. He really started syncretic kinds of worship and idolatry in the north and and the Lord says as though it had been trivial for Ahab to follow Jeroboam's sins he married Jezebel the daughter of Ethbaal king of the Sidonians and went to serve Baal and worshiped him that's what Ahab did
1: That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with Part 7 of his series, The Seven Churches of Revelation. Tom will have Part 8 for you on our next program, and we hope you'll join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at one eight seven seven five seven seven word And don't forget to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.